Welcome to episode eight of Monday Club Conversations in Isolation podcast. Monday Club is a small voluntary group that meets at a Bather and Tenant Community Library, which is in the South Wales Valleys. And we set up to bring older people together for friendship and activity, really, and fun. Well, here we are, it's the middle of May, and we are still practicing safe distancing to help defeat COVID-19. Because we can't meet and be together, we are continuing to make podcasts as a way of reaching out into the community to help keep us in touch with each other. Uh, last week, we spoke with Mary, Tony, Bron and Terry. Today, we are very pleased to introduce Karen and Rhiannon. So thank you for agreeing to talk with us. Um, would you please introduce yourselves and tell us how you are connected to Monday Club, please? My name is Karen <laughs> Clark. I'm involved with the Monday Club through my mother, who is Bronwyn. And also, it's at the Bay of the Tenant Library that I was went to when I was all through my schooling. So I've known I've known the library for a lot of years, shall we say. Yeah. Hello, I'm Rhiannon. Karen Hoover again is my mum and Bronwyn is my grandmother. That's how I know Monday Club. And I've done a little I've done a talk um the Monday Club before as well. Okay, we always have an icebreaker question. And today's question is what is the weirdest food you have ever eaten. We thought this one was funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you've done some travelling, so I thought you might have had the chance mm. to experience some weird and wonderful stuff. Who would like to go first? Well, I'll go first because my weirdest one is locust. Oh, dear. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think mum wins. <laughs> <laughs> when Jonathan and I were travelling in Vietnam, we went to a little local um, restaurant there. And we were sitting at the table and this party of businessmen came in next to us and there were some Japanese men and some Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese obviously were trying to impress the Japanese. They said, oh, you must try our local cuisine and then brought all these different dishes out. And these Japanese men, were, and they were saying, oh, you know, the locusts, the locusts, you know, they're fantastic. And these Japanese men were going, oh, no, 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 we can't eat them. We can't eat them. And this Vietnamese man looked at me and he said, oh, you know, and he touched it. And I said, oh, come on, I'll eat one then. And these men just were absolutely shocked <laughs> that I would eat a locust. So I was eating the locust then to show them that they're not going to kill them and that women can do things that men seem to shy away from. Absolutely. But did you enjoy the experience? Yeah, it didn't really taste of anything. It was just very crunchy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can than me. My weirdest food is probably jackfruit. When I went to Sri Lanka, I was in Sri Lanka for a while. Yeah. Um, doing some voluntary work for my gold youth Edinburgh. And um, I had some jackfruit out there, which is a bit bizarre. It tastes a bit like banana custard, and but it's like stringy. Yeah. And it's ginormous. It's like the size of a football, if not bigger. But um, yeah, that's probably the oddest food that I've had. It was really very nice, really lovely. Yes. But it's got like a funny white like piss on it. And it's like super sticky, like super glue. So if you get it on your hands, it can end up sticking your hands together. It's really crazy. Okay, but it sounds a bit better than the locust option. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. the other one then that we've eaten as well is is we used to live in Borneo. Yeah. And there you get the I don't know if you've heard of it. You get the durian fruit. No. The durian again is a very big fruit. You smell it before you see it, but it smells absolutely disgusting. Oh. And then when you peel it open, the inside. 
is like a white soft flesh which you eat and it tastes again it tastes like custard but the inside is absolutely fantastic it's really really nice to eat but you've got to hold your nose because the smell is so bad well in Singapore they have it as well and like when you're in Singapore they have big signs everywhere on the underground stations that say no durian fruit is allowed durian durian yeah 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 but the but because it grows in the tropical rainforest, the smell is there to attract all the I was insects. Say, what is, what, you know, why would it smell, I wonder? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's because in the rainforest it can get lost because it's so tightly packed with vegetation. So it's attract all the in, insects and everything to it. And then it tastes absolutely delicious. So they all eat it then and then take the seeds away. Yeah, if you can get past the smell, it's really nice to eat. But the smell is, it smells like rotten flesh. Oh. It's disgusting. <laughs> take a supply of eggs to you then, is it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. How about you, Carol? Well, having not just travelled to such exotic places, um, when we were kids, Sam, we used to go to Bali. That was as far as we could yeah. get to the Sunday schools, and we've talked about that on many occasions. So it was probably collecting winkles, you know, from the dirty, filthy Bristol Channel, which we used to take home and then put in the pot and boil in the stove and eat with a pin. So, I mean, we enjoyed them at the time, but when you think of probably what went into the sewage and goodness knows what and the cold dust, etc., it's a wonder we um, survived, but we did. And um, as you know, when we go to the Trattatoria in Pontypridd for our lunches, I always have the seafood cocktail. Yeah. And because it's in with the, the rest of the seafood, I, I, I'll eat it. But uh, squid, I, I just can't see what squid is about. And oh, don't start me on octopus, but no, probably winkle. Well, mine's a bit disappointing. I mean, I could tell you that I've eaten gizzard or a baby octopus, but I'd be lying. Mm -hmm. I was just with braver people that ventured into eating such delicacies. The lady who chose the octopus, however, changed her mind just before she ate it. She went to, well, she went to spear it with her fork and it, it moved. Oh, dear. <laughs> So, yeah, I suppose my weirdest, the weirdest thing I've ever eaten was uh, when I was away with work and we went to a pub, as you might, to have an evening meal. And I decided that I would go with a house special meat and potato pie. And when it arrived, my friend said to me, did you order the desperate damn pie? It's very big. I said, no, I'm just just have speciality. Anyway, when I ate it, I thought Desperate Dan was probably in the pie. <laughs> it was it was the most weird coloured meat I've ever seen. Mm. And I'm just glad I never got to know what the meat actually was. But that's about it. I'm not very really adventurous when it's eating and certainly could never imagine eating a low rest. <laughs> Karen, if I could start with you, you were going to give us a presentation on walking to or climbing up to base camp, Everest Base Camp. That's right, yes. It's, it's all, my PowerPoint presentation is ready and it's just sitting on the computer. <laughs> well, you can give us a bit of an insight into it today, if you will. Right, well, uh, three years ago, my brother and his wife from Australia, myself and my husband, Anne Rhiannon, the five of us, went and did a trek to Everest Base Camp over 12 days. So we flew into Kathmandu in N Nepal which is a very vibrant, bustling, 
I suppose we would call it a town, but it's the, uh, you know, it's the capital of Nepal. The Nepalese people are just fantastic. They're just so friendly. And uh, and we've travelled a lot in Asia as well. So I suppose for us, it wasn't really that different, was it? No, we love it. Yeah, it's amazing. My brother had arranged the trip from Australia. So it was a group of Australians that we went Mm -hmm. with. So there were like 26 of us, quite a few um, young people. And then a few people my age, but the young Australians, they were absolutely clueless. They were absolutely (laughs) clueless. You know, we were going to Everest Base Camp and they were in shorts and t shirts (laughs) and and like flip flops. And they'd gone with like just pairs of trainers and like thin waterproof jackets. And we were there, you know, when we'd taken thick like puffer jackets with us and sleeping bag, thick sleeping bags. Yeah, and these youngsters. So it was was quite entertaining. But anyway, so we flew into Kathmandu and then from Kathmandu then you have to fly. Well, you can trek, but it takes an extra three days, but we flew up to a place called Lukla. And you go in a little, very small airplane. And we couldn't go for two days because of the weather. So we just ended up sitting at the airport waiting for a weather window to open so we could actually fly up Lukla. And we managed to get on a, on a flight on the, in the morning of the second day, didn't we? Yeah, we were only like a handful of the group got onto the plane. And then we flew off and we flew for about half an hour and they just turned the plane back around and took us back. Mm. because the weather was so bad and they couldn't land. But we genuinely didn't think we were going to make it. We didn't think we were going to get out of the airport at one point. Yeah, Yeah, so we we actually got up to Lukla, but we ended up trekking then in the dark to get to our first guest houses. So on the way up the mountain, you have to trek for like four, four or five hours every day to get to the next guest house. A few people camp on the way up, but it's there are not many places to camp. So most people stay in, in guest houses and, and the guest houses are very basic. Yeah, imagine. you have to pay there, there are some cold a few cold water showers, you know, it's outside toilets, and you effectively have just a few wooden slats with a very thin mattress. You take all your own sleeping bags and everything with you. But what we what they'd arranged is you have porters. Yeah. So you just carry your day sack and then they have the Sherpas then. The Sherpas all take a hold all for you, but then you're restricted to 15 kilos. So in there, then you've got to have everything you want wow. for the 12 days. Yeah. And I must say, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm fit, but I'm reasonably fit, yeah. I think, for my yeah. age. And I found it really hard. Yeah. You know, I, I really wondered whether... I would make it. And I think part of the problem was the first few days, it was hotter than this. Now, I'd gone to the Himalayas expecting it to be cold. And I'd actually packed for cold weather. And we were walking in T-shirt and shorts. And I I think I just got heat exhaustion because I didn't drink enough. Right. Yeah. Because I just didn't think about drinking. Yeah. Because, again... the only water you've got going up the mountain is from is from the rivers. Mm. So you then have to put like iodine tablets and things like that in it, which tastes pretty disgusting. Isn't it clean enough then? Well, well, you don't know what, you don't know what bacteria is in there, right. even though you're getting it from running water. Mm. 
a lot of people in our group were ill anyway. I, I got ill. Rhiannon was really ill yeah. going up. Like, yeah. You get altitude sickness yeah. as you're going up the mountain. And when you get altitude sickness, you lose your appetite. and You start getting headaches and you, you just don't feel very well. One of the things we were eating a lot is garlic soup because garlic is very good for altitude sickness. All right. So, so wherever we went, it was garlic soup. But the higher up the mountain we would go in, the less we felt like eating. So we, had, well, my brother is six foot six, a big. He's very athletic, and he was living on Pringles and Snicker bars. <laughs> he just couldn't face eating anything else. That sounds a bit Welsh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you all, we also went vegetarian because everything on the mountain has to be carried up on the back of somebody. And we, you know, we saw a porter go past us one day with a sheep hanging out of the back of this rucksack he was carrying up. And you think, well, it's taken him like probably two or three days to get up there with his sheep in his backpack, no refrigeration, nothing. <laughs> so it was, you know, best just to stay yeah. vegetarian for the whole of the trip. But I think, well, we had three people, who were, three, three people yeah. who were taken off the mountain with altitude sickness out of our group of 26. And I think everybody suffered. So who was doing the guiding? Who was doing the guiding? We had, we had four Nepalese. We went with a company called Ace the Himalaya, which is a Nepalese company. Yeah. And we had four Nepalese guy, guys who went with us. And actually, when I saw the group was 26, I think, oh, this is really big. Yeah. But the nice thing that they did was they had a guy at the front and one at the back, and then they had two in the middle. And depending on how you felt each day, you could move between the different groups. So if you were having a good day, you could go to the front group and walk a bit faster. If you had a particularly bad day, you could drop back. So it was quite good that we weren't all bunched together, that different people could go at different speeds, depending on what they wanted to do. Because like my brother, you know, is super fit and he just raced off but then his you know his wife then is not fit at all and she was in the back group but she still had people to be with and he didn't have to drop back to keep up with her you know he, he could just go off and do his own thing and as I said depending on how you felt you could move through the group which I thought was worked out really well yeah the path defined yes you know it was yes, and it was very much what they called Nepalese flat. Yeah. So it's not flat. <laughs> so they would say, "Oh yeah, we're doing, we're going on the flat today," yeah. and then you were going up and down, up and down, and probably it was flat by the time you got where you went. But you went up and down so much to get to that point. Yeah, you're only allowed to go like 500 meters a day to try and stop the altitude sickness. But we probably went kilometers up and down to actually yeah. ascend by the 500 meters. Yeah. And the other thing they did as well, which was really good, is they built in acclimatization days. So at certain points when we got higher, we stayed in the accommodation for two nights and then just did short walks up and down to get acclimatized before we moved on. They also had little monitor things that they put on your finger and it checks your oxygen level in your blood. So if your oxygen level wasn't above 80%, they wouldn't let you go any further. Okay, it was very well organized then. Describe the scenery, Karen. The mountains are just mind, it's just mind blowing. Mm. It's so, so beautiful. It makes you feel really small. And it's just such a privilege to be there. It's just, and it's quiet and it's peaceful. And at one point we woke up surrounded in snow and it's just soaring, soaring mountains. 
and yeah crossing rivers where you've got the glacier water in yeah. it and it's the most incredible color like green blue yeah and, yeah oh, and, then, and there was all the little bridges across these big chasms suspension really bridges suspension bridge very long suspension bridges and we would meet like yaks coming the other direction and you're halfway across the bridge and these yaks don't stop they just keep going so you're on this bridge then trying to be as small as possible to let them go past you and uh, you knew they were coming because they have bells on and they have don donkeys as well but they're like about 20 30 long wow but uh, just the people are just so it was just such friendly and amazing yeah. and um, so are, are there people living there as just yeah. live or are they just you know is this a business to them then you know the there are locals that yeah. live there, so we were constantly going through little villages oh, okay. of, of people who live in the mountains that live at those altitudes oh, all year round. Amazing. Yeah, it was the same. It was just totally bonkers. Like we were totally knackered, bent over double, yeah. hiking up, and this guy would walk past you with two sheets of two by four timber, like MDF on his back in flip flops, <laughs> <laughs> because they were because we were getting there just as the climbing season was starting. So taking all the gear up to base camp. So they were taking like doors and yeah. just all this crazy equipment up there to actually build base camp itself ready for the climbing season for the summits. And these guys were just like hiking past us. Yeah, I think one guy was in flip-flops with like massive sheets of wood on his back. It was just the fitness of these people is just incredible because that is their native environment. Yeah. It was just amazing. Yeah, it was. I would go back you would. in a heartbeat. When I look back, I think, would I do it again? Because it was so physically challenging. Yeah, yeah. We would, we would, de <laughs> we would definitely go to Nepal again, but maybe we might do Annapurna or something next time, which is a different route through the Himalayas. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who is thinking of the trek to base camp? Make sure you go with a rep reputable company. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And like the company we went as well was a Nepalese company. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the money that we gave that company was going into a foundation for schools and things like that. So I think try and find a company that's actually doing something for the local people. Yeah. yeah. Sounds amazing. We enjoyed that at all, couldn't we, Anne? You know, in the photo. Yeah, that, yeah. that was really interesting. And, and I hope that uh, we will see you in the library with your slides when we as soon as we can get back just let me know when you want me to come and i'll be there all right we're really looking forward to it so thank you very much rhiannon i know monday club yeah. has already the pleasure of hearing you speak about your work with uh, wild creations is it i've worked with lots of different people okay. but yes wild creations is one of them yeah so can i just ask you as an intro what led you into that the profession into my scenic art profession. Yeah. I've always been into films and movies, particularly fantasy movies. So I love Lord of the Rings and things like that. And just was fascinated with how they created it and brought it to the screen. So with the Lord of the Rings, I've got the big extended box sets and they've got like three discs for the movies and three discs of behind the oh, scenes yeah. making of. Yeah. And I actually, even now, I enjoy watching the making of of these movies probably more than the movie itself. So like all the Star Wars and all of that, I love watching all the behind the scenes and how it's done. And that's kind of how it started. And I think I was like, oh, hang on. People people make this stuff. Like this could be a job and a career. Like that's super cool. Um, so 
then started just doing a little bit of research around it really found out that you could do a theatre design course so I decided to do theatre design as a degree because I'd read that if you do a TV design course then you can't really go into theatre it's not transferable that way but the theatre design skills are transferable into TV yeah. so I'm also a big theatre buff and I love yeah. like ballet and plays and things like that as well so I wanted to be able to do both. So I did a degree in Nottingham in theatre design, which I loved, left the degree and then realised there's like no real career as a designer unless you're like ridiculously good and talented. Like it's very, you know, for a team of 20 or 30 people, you have making the design, you have one designer. So also very quickly realised that I find directors particularly hard to work with. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that I was much more of a hands-on making kind of person than I was as a designer. Came back to Wales and tried to work probably for a year. Found it really difficult. Got into Cardiff Theatrical Services, which produced all the sets for Welsh National Opera. I think that's probably where I started, isn't it? Yeah, and then you went. I did some work experience on Doctor Who after. Oh, yeah, I went to the Royal Welsh then. Um, And then I did, um, yeah, so then I did a master's at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. That's in the new building or? um, Yeah, Yeah, in the new building. Yeah, I was very lucky. I was in the lovely new building. But yeah, so I realised that I preferred to be in the painting and making side of it. So managed to find that course and did that for a year, which then actually opened up all of the doors. So through that, I did some work experience on Doctor Who and it all kind of, rolled on from there now I think I can link nearly every job I've ever had back to Royal Welsh and Doctor Who so yeah. that's kind of how well it that's not started. a bad start you know name dropping <laughs> but I was on Doctor Who is it you know no no at all <laughs> well I think that's well you want me to name drop even more I was very lucky I did a load of work on the 50th anniversary episode that was my first ever foray into tv we did a whole load of work me and the one other person there were two of us on this master's course so the two of us were working um with the designers and stuff doing all the painting of the backdrops and things for the 50th anniversary episode of doctor who which was pretty amazing yeah imagine it was yeah yeah. i I remember one of the first episodes of doctor who and i believe the cybermen then had like paper plates on their chest back and front Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) They're much far more scary now, although they scared me quite a lot at that time, as I um, remember. So do you want to tell us some of the other things you've worked on? The most recent thing that I did work on was Dark Materials. I've only done work on the first episode. They've just finished filming the second episode, and I think they've just been scheduled um, to do the third one, um, the third season. But obviously, unfortunately, it's all ground to a halt at the moment. Yeah. I was just about to start on Sex Education as well, which is a TV series on Netflix. So I was a head painter on the second series. And we were just about literally like the week before lockdown, we were about to start on the third series. Um, Yeah. That's all finished as well. Where would that have taken place then? In Carleon, it's all filmed on the old um, university yes. campus in Carleon. Yeah, I mean Wales has become really uh, terrific place, you know. Apart from the situation we're in, for your sort of work, really, isn't it? You wouldn't have thought that a few years ago, would you? You know, 
No, well, I always remember when I first moved back to Wales, they had the Dragon Studios that was just being built. They were going to claim it was like Valleywood yes. and it was going to be amazing yeah. and wonderful. Yeah. And within a year, it went bankrupt. Yeah. But now I know another company has bought it out and it's now Dragon Studios and up and running. Yeah. And they're All actually, right. we've actually run out of space there. We actually filled every single studio with um, Brave New World, which is another series I was working on just before Christmas or in the run up to Christmas which I think is going to be on the telly soon, actually. I saw a trailer for it the other day. But we filled every single studio down there and the outside space, and I believe they're actually looking at building more studios on that land now because they want to expand the space. So it does seem to have suddenly taken a big turn upwards, yeah, which has been pretty spectacular. That's good to know, isn't it? So when things start moving, hopefully, then uh, there'll be other projects um, available. Yeah, I'm not sure what is lined up to come through at the moment as I said well no and to be honest I've just seen so many different things flying around and I just can't see how it's going to happen because they're talking about lockdown easing up and how like loads of these Facebook groups that I'm part of are saying oh you know they've got these guidelines for the TV industry and I'm just like how can you have two meter distancing when you're trying to apply makeup and apparently EastEnders and a couple of other things are going to start but they're going to you know the actors with socially distance and stuff so. but what about the crew this is what yeah. I don't understand because yeah. as a construction crew yeah. as a painting crew like okay maybe you can but when you're trying to stand flats up that are not two metres long, how are you then going to be two metres distant? And also when you're putting makeup on an actor, that's not no, two metres. No, when you need to put a mic on an actor, that's not two metres. When you have an entire crew yeah. locked, like when they're filming, they lock all the doors of the studio. Yeah. You're basically containing like 30 or 40 odd people in the space the size of a house for like eight or nine hours a day. A lot of the time they're doing 12 hour days. Please explain to like, I don't understand how it's physically possible to run any kind of film crew with social distancing. I just, I personally, I can't see it. I can't see it happening. Well, um, I wouldn't even want to go to a cinema. You know, I know you could seat, you know, two or three apart. But when you think it's like air conditioning and etc. Yeah, so unfortunately, I can't see the TV industry really starting up until probably next year because we normally have a quiet season through the winter mm. because you've got shorter days you've got lower lights they don't tend to do a lot of filming through the winter season anyway well, how are you keeping busy so i'm keeping very busy because i actually have another business which is growing cut flowers mm. so it's a little business that i've had yeah. taking over in the background while i'm still painting but it's been i know it's not nice to say it's been a good thing but it's been really nice actually to have the space to build that business for the future yeah i i remember last year you put flowers in the library and in gold yeah yeah they made me remember my childhood and my dad's garden because they were oh. they were like pretty colorful colorful british flowers very yeah. pretty and sweet and is that what you growing again this year that sort of thing yes yeah, so my business is called blue hill flora and we're based in Pontedowie, just outside of swansea and i specialize in growing cut flowers which are all local grow, locally grown and grown in an eco-friendly way and i can't believe the demand for flowers at the moment it's just been a bit bonkers so mm-hmm. i doubled my growing space from last year we're now running as a we're running as an official business it's not a side business anymore oh that's um and i'm yeah. 
yeah, I'm supplying florists. I've got three florists in Cardiff where I do a regular rundown on a Thursday. And I've got two or three florists locally up here in Neath and Swansea as well now that I'm supplying. And I also do birthday bouquets and things as well. I had a lovely bouquet I delivered to Clidditch last week. And I've just had an order through for another one to go down to Cardiff next week. It's been amazing and it's been really busy. I'm glad to hear that. How did you get into that, uh, Rhiannon, then? Mm. How did I get into that? Well, I've always been a bit of a gardening nut. So I've always had a little bit of, like, mum and dad have always given me a little bit of garden wherever we've been. And I've always well, you must been think outside. It's like your granddad then, is you? Like Terry. Yeah, yeah and Jonathan's mother as well. Jonathan's mother was a very keen gardener. Yeah. And Rhiannon was just interested from a small age. So we've, yeah, she's always had her own garden. She's always had her own patch, which she designed and looked after, haven't you? Yeah. And I just really wanted to do something long term that's going to have a positive impact on the planet because I love TV and I love the TV industry, but dear God, is it not eco friendly? I just wanted to build a business that gives back. So, you know, my tagline is cut flowers with a conscience because I'm building the business in a way that, you know, a portion of it is going to charity to support wildlife and help us do projects on the farm, which is encouraging wildlife. So, you know, we've got swallows and bats and we've got badges, which we caught on the camera the other day. That was brilliant. So we've got amazing wildlife here that I'm always trying to encourage. And you can, can have beautiful flowers that smell amazing and are seasonal and haven't been on an aeroplane and aren't preserved with chemicals and aren't grown with chemicals and things like that it's it's possible and we do it (laughs) the thing I find with Rhiannon's flowers is they're just so different what you can buy in the supermarket that's right you know you get all the the larkspur and things like that and the camassias and And sweet peas you know you you can't see buy anything like that in the soup and it's nice to see all the old-fashioned flowers it is yeah absolutely coming back and seeing and seeing them in bouquets you know and the colors and the the scent of them that's what what, um, impressed me it was just the perfume in the library you walked in it was gorgeous and it wasn't an artificial smell it was just natural and you know well it's nature isn't it you know so I always try and grow something that's scented because it makes me really sad with a lot of flowers where we've lost that and I think scent is so evocative like for me it's not summer without sweet peas and you I find a lot of the ones that you buy in are treated with something called silver nitrate and actually lose their scent when they're treated so yeah oh you just can't have words to describe it when you have a flower that is beautiful and smells that way and immediately drops you into like when you were five it's just yeah it's like magic for me I find it yeah Yeah. like magic yeah I, I, I imagine but a lot of hard work obviously yeah <laughs> yeah mum's here shaking her head huffing. Yeah. yes it's an awful lot of hard work but it's a work of passion so mm-hmm. it doesn't really feel necessarily that hard all the time yeah I've got lots of stuff that grows beautifully I've got alliums which are coming up amazingly at the moment most of them are gone now actually they went into orders last week yeah well I've got irises coming up I've got corn cockles sweet williams um lovely yeah lots of things there's a lot of things that you can still grow outside even up here in wales okay <laughs> I, and do you have sheep close by at all because i know some uh, on a farm and the, the sheep love to come and eat the flower tops 
oh right yeah we've got our neighbours have sheep but luckily we've got good fences oh well (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's been really interesting thank you very much for joining us oh next week we are not going to record a podcast we are going to hold an open zoom chat so tapas three next friday afternoon which is friday the 22nd anybody that wants to should be able to join in to a zoom then it will be hosted by debbie Aurelius, my daughter because it means we can invite as many people people are free to come and join in and just try and get a chat like we would normally have in the Monday Club. Thank you for for joining us. I'd like to say thank you as well to those of you that have retweeted our posts and helped share the podcast. Please keep it up because we welcome your feedback or your questions and your comments. Thanks to everybody for listening. May I remind you also that you must never accept any advice from this podcast. If you need to know anything about coronavirus, we strongly suggest you go onto the government uh, website, which is at gov.uk forward slash coronavirus, and keep yourself up to date as to what you can and cannot do, because that's getting a little bit more confusing, isn't it, at the moment? Just ensure you keep yourselves safe. Thanks to our guests. And thank you very much for having us. Lovely listening. Absolutely lovely, yeah. Lovely listening. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you both again. I have to say thanks to Debbie Aurelius for hosting this podcast, editing and publishing it for us. And hope it's helped you feel more in touch with everybody and perhaps a little less isolated for a while. So it's bye for now. Bye. Bye. And bye. (laughs)